So if you really want to solve the homework gap, the best thing to do is to give schools and libraries that, that option to self-deploy. Welcome to episode 464 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Rye Marcatilio McCracken here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Today, Christopher talks with John Windhausen, Executive Director of the Schools, Health, Libraries, and Broadband Coalition, as well as the nonprofit's Communications Manager, Alicia Johnson. Shelby, as it's called, has worked to advocate for to and through broadband infrastructure, not only to connect community anchor institutions, but to facilitate connections through those communities as a way to bring better connectivity to communities as a whole. John and Alicia cover the wide array of specific projects Shelby has going on, from work on the Emergency Connectivity Fund, to telehealth efforts, to making sure community anchor institutions show up on broadband maps, as well as the larger picture efforts they participate in, including encouraging anchor institutions to cooperate and collaborate and the future of Spectrum in its role in expanding wireless networks across the country. Now here's Christopher talking with John and Alicia. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota. And today I'm speaking with a wonderful organization with the executive director, John Windhausen from Shelby, the schools, hospitals, and libraries broadband coalition. Welcome to the show, John. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. And we also have Alicia Johnson, the communications manager from Shelby. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having us. Yes, this is something I wanted to do in 2019. And then... (laughs) We just never got around to it. And lo and behold, we're going to have, unfortunately, some of the, the same things we would have talked about then, but uh, we can talk about progress we've made since and and what we're still working on. Uh, but for people who weren't there at, at the founding, uh, what is the Schools, Hospitals, and Library Broadband Coalition? What is that? Well, we're a nonprofit public interest group, and we have, were formed in 2009 because we're now uh, almost 12 years old, actually. We were formed in order to be strong advocate and a voice for anchor institutions in public broadband circles. And the reason is that the traditional industry tends to divide the world between business and residential. And they leave out the needs of the schools, the libraries, the healthcare providers, the community colleges, public housing, all of those critical institutions that aggregate a lot of people and serve the public interest we're their, their advocate. We try to make sure that they're not forgotten and left out of these broadband policy decisions. And I think I may have used the wrong name. Was it originally the hospitals or did I just always remember that incorrectly? We're actually schools, health and libraries, broadband coalition. So we focus on not just hospitals, but also a lot of those rural health clinics that especially need broadband. And we've seen through this COVID pandemic, why getting broadband to those health clinics is so vitally important. Yes, I want to to make sure I got that right. Was it hospitals in 2009 or was it health then too? And I've just always gotten it wrong. Um, It's always in our name, it's always been health. Well, there you go. I should just pay more attention. Includes hospitals and health clinics and anyone providing telemedicine. Cool. Yeah, no, I think um, the, the organization in my mind was also uh, it was well, it's instrumental because that was the time when the federal government was going to try to 
um, figure out how to improve connectivity to these community anchors. And there was no one really that was ready to step up. There's organizations that do great work for in each of these fields, but there, there was a need for an organization like yours to sort of centralize that message with a focus on broadband for all of them. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, uh, the American Library Association does a great job for libraries and COSIN and CETA do a great job for schools and others for health, but nobody really brings those sectors together. And, and with the private sector industry and state broadband officials, uh, consultants. So we try to be that kind of melting pot that brings all of these different diverse sectors together to, to figure out common sense solutions uh, to these broadband problems. Now, let me ask Alicia, what does that actually mean? So if I ask you, you know, all right, so I understand the reason for, for Shelby's existence. What does it actually do on a, on a regular basis? Well, we're taking a look at the various funding opportunities, the various broadband policy talk from the FCC, the White House and Congress, and we're reminding them, hey, I see you're talking about residents, I see you're talking about businesses, but how about the schools and libraries, the public housing authorities? So we just want to make sure that anchors are always being included in these policies because you really cannot leave them out. Um, they are the cornerstones of any healthy community. And it's just vital in this 21st century for them to have broadband access. So we try to make sure that the people who are making broadband access happen don't forget about these important institutions. I think I think one of the ways that you do that very well, uh, specifically, John, when we're at conferences and the focus is just acting as though the world is filled solely with residents and businesses, you will often stand up and <laughs> remind people, you know, we have these institutions that are an important part of our lives that we really need to also consider in this work. So I, I think you all do a good job of that. Uh, let me know, what are your uh, what are your like, key priorities right now that you're that you're working on? Well, I'd be happy to, to talk about that. Let me just provide one additional framing uh, reference point so that the audience understands where we're coming from. So we have a little turn of phrase, which we call to and through. So our mission is to build broadband, not just to the anchor institutions, but have that be open to interconnection uh, so that it can also be used as a jumping off point to serve the residential consumers around them. So that's what also makes us a little bit different from a lot of other groups that are just focused on the, like the school building or the health building. We actually want everybody to have broadband, the anchor institution and the, the residential consumers. So we care very much about extending high-speed broadband to homes as well and also making that affordable. For instance, uh, with rural health care, um, we're big supporters of the FCC's rural health care program. Um, and we were doing this work before the pandemic, but now it's even more important that we've gone through that. But the program is desperately underfunded. It's the smallest of the four universal service fund programs that the FCC administers. And unfortunately, it should be treated equally with E-rate. Uh, but right now, E-rate gets about uh, five times more funding than the rural healthcare program does. And that's nothing against E-rate. We're strong supporters of E-rate too, but it does show the disparity in funding that we are trying to equalize. So we are working with the FCC uh, uh, to improve the processing delays with rural health care applicants. We're also uh, sponsoring legislation in Congress that would provide an additional $2 billion to, to supplement the FCC's rural health care program. 
So those are a couple of things that we can do, but our big initiative lately has been the Emergency Connectivity Fund that Congress passed that $7 billion. That's also a big uh, uh, initiative of ours that we strongly support. And I'll let Alicia talk about that because she just managed this, this fabulous workshop last week. Well, I can't take full credit, of course. Um, John did a wonderful job putting together the program. And what really made it possible is that we had over 20 different speakers, many of whom were experts in E-rate. And then we also had some of the policymakers engaged in uh, making the Emergency Connectivity Fund happen. So um, we're really hoping to see schools and libraries make the most of this opportunity because it's really historic. Um, and I don't know if you've discussed it on here before, Chris, but um, never before has there been such funding allocated for schools and libraries to connect their uh, the communities they serve off campus. And so that's it's just a very exciting opportunity and something that Shelby has really been driving for ever since the pandemic began. And even before that, um, when in, I believe, 2016, a school district filed a petition to uh, try to connect its students at home in Boulder, Colorado. Um, we've been, you know, we've been trying to push for opportunities like that because the schools and libraries and other anchors are really in the best position to help connect their, their communities and those without internet at home. And as we've heard our wonderful acting chairwoman, uh, Rosenworcel say, um, you cannot do your homework without internet uh, in this era. And especially since the pandemic began, there's, it's really, you can't do much at all without internet. And so we've really, um, we're really glad to see the FCC has begun this opportunity with the Emergency Connectivity Fund. But of course, it's a ton of new rules. And there's some, some items that we'd like some clarification on just to make sure that um, everybody's able to obtain this funding and use it in the right way. And um, and not go against the FCC's uh, wishes. Yeah, John, if you want to provide a little bit of insight into that, I would be I would be interested. I'm, I've been deeply disappointed um, in in some of the rules. I think um, you know um, clearly you've had a lot of ideas for policy improvements that I think weren't taken up by the FCC, which has a we live in a world in which, um, you know, the FCC doesn't want to tell someone that they don't get any piece of the loaf. So <laughs> unfortunately, some of your good ideas were not embraced, uh, ones that I shared with you. But uh, what clarifications are there out there that you'd like to address? Well, that's right, Chris. We were a little disappointed that the ECF rules didn't uh, make it easy for schools and libraries to deploy their own wireless networks. Um, and I know that's an issue that you've been working on and, and we've been working on too. Um, you know, the, the advantages of CBRS spectrum are just tremendous. And what we found is that schools are increasingly looking at deploying their own private LTE networks. And as Alicia said, Boulder Valley, Colorado started this trend even before CBRS came on by putting a contracting with a wireless internet service provider and they agreed to put antennas on the roof of the building, of the school building and broadcast out wireless internet service. And they made it available for free to low income consumers, which we just thought was a fabulous opportunity. And the company, the WISP was able, was willing to do that because they were getting free access to the school building 
um, infrastructure. And fiber. And fiber, yeah. Yeah, because they built the fiber without using E-rate dollars. Exactly. That's right. So we really want to, I mean, this is very consistent with our to and through mission. And so we really see this as a great opportunity to foster uh, this kind of technological approach uh, that can often be more efficient and more uh, cost-effective or cheaper <laughs> than some of the incumbent providers. But unfortunately, the Congressional legislation uh, that created the ECF program really focused on funding hotspots and cable modem services, which are the two primary technologies used by the incumbents. And when we talked to Capitol Hill to say, look, could you loosen that up to give schools more authority? Uh, the Hill folks said, well, we'll leave that to the FCC to figure out. <laughs> and then when we went to the FCC to say, can you make that more liberal for schools and libraries? They said, well, Congress didn't tell us to do that, so we're not authorized to do that. Well, I think they are authorized to do that, and, um, but it was unfortunate that Congress wasn't um, more clear. But anyway, if there's more funding coming down the pike, we hope that more funding flexibility is made available. Right now, the rules say you can only self-deploy if there's no other commercial provider in that market, but that's hard for schools and libraries to know if there's another provider. The providers often exaggerate where they provide service and claim that they provide service when they actually don't, or the speeds aren't good enough, or it's too expensive. So there are a lot of reasons why a school or library could do this on their own and really connect a lot more students. So if you really want to solve the homework gap, the best thing to do is to give schools and libraries that, that option to self-deploy. Yes, and you mentioned the the Boulder project, and they are featured in a uh, paper that I was involved in through the Department of Education's EdTech office uh, that um, uh, we'll be highlighting on MuniNetworks.org. And I'm going to go ahead and guess that um, that you all will probably feature in your um, lists and emails um, as um, uh, some of that comes out. Uh, we did a podcast actually with the ISP and um, and Andrew Moore, I think his name was um, mm -hmm. at Boulder who <laughs> got the call from the FCC that he was violating E-rate <laughs> and would he please stop? And so they had to come up with a, with a, with an issue that um, they have that you've carried that forward that uh, that request for a waiver, but there's for people who are really interested in more information on this, um, like whether you look at the, where this podcast is posted or just stay, pay attention to my work or, or Shelby's work, you'll find more information about that in coming weeks. I think Alicia, did you want to add anything to that? Another really enticing part about schools and libraries deploying their own networks as opposed to just hotspot renting um, is that that's a solution that will outlast the pandemic because there are areas where hotspots aren't going to cut it. And we've we've talked to a number of school districts and libraries about their problems trying to connect their residents. And the number one thing we hear is, I don't want to get started on hotspots. The hotspots have been a nightmare. So it's just, it's great for some areas. It's going to work wonderfully for some people in some regions, but in other areas, a hotspot's completely useless. And I think anyone listening to this podcast is going to be aware of that, but it's something that the FCC didn't hear us on. And that, that was unfortunate because uh, even prior to the pandemic, the chair of the FCC, Rosenworcel, has been a big advocate for closing the homework gap. And so we'd really hoped that this ECF would be a good opportunity to address the homework gap issue beyond just the current crisis. 
And another issue that we've heard about is the document retention requirements for libraries. Um, we understand that libraries are being asked to retain documentation of patrons uh, who are borrowing hotspots and other devices for, I believe, 10 years after that device has been returned. Um, and that's not something that libraries do. In fact, what library representatives have told us is that it goes against the very creed of the library mission. And so we do worry that if the FCC doesn't do something to address that concern, that it will discourage eligible libraries from applying for funding because they're gonna put those principles of library service over this funding. Yes, and frankly, um, <laughs> I mean, just the libraries are very focused. And we know this for those of us who lived through the Patriot Act in the beginning of that, like they are a mountain uh, when it comes to uh, protecting the privacy of their patrons. Um, and so I, I would not want to encourage them to just not participate, which I would guess many of them will choose to do. Um, I want to move on. And so we're not going to, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I want to note that like this issue of the schools, it isn't just about like, oh, the schools want to do this thing that's going to cost more money. In, in many cases, what we're talking about with these programs is whether or not you can consider it if it's the lowest cost. And, and even in cases right now in which it would be the lowest cost to self-provision, they're still being discouraged from doing that. And so I think that's um, something E-Rate has gotten right in the past with Shelby's help um, was making sure that dark fiber, for instance, was on the table when it was the, the best deal for the taxpayers or for the, the people who pay the fees that fund the Universal Service Fund. So, um, but I want to ask, John, how is it going in terms of making sure that all of our community anchors are connected uh, to a high quality uh, internet connection? Well, we're making progress, Chris, but it's been a little frustrating that we haven't solved this problem yet. Um, and as Alicia said earlier, we don't even know how far away we are from solving the problem because the broadband maps don't cover anchor institutions. And this is a, a very frustrating. We've talked to the FCC because you know they've launched a new mapping initiative, which, okay, that's great uh, to recognize that they need the old maps are are bad, so we need new and better maps that are more granular, but uh, the FCC seems to be only focused on, on the residential um, mapping, which is fine. We're not trying to denigrate that, but anchor institutions ought to be mapped as well. We ought to know, we ought to have a better uh, data set for what kind of broadband anchor institutions have today, so we'd know how much money we need to solve the problem going forward. You know, Joanne Hovis, who I think you and I both know and love. Uh, Terrible person. A... Can't stand her. <laughs> <laughs> yes. she's, oh, she's, the, she's the best. Yes. <laughs> she's wonderful. Um, she wrote a report for us a few years ago that estimated it would cost between 13 and $19 billion to connect all the remaining anchor institutions to high capacity broadband like fiber. And that was a significant study, but it was still based on estimates of the demand. Um, we really ought to have a more rigorous mapping effort so that we would know how far away we are from that gigabit goal. Fortunately, we are seeing some legislation in Congress that would really take the uh, initiative to really identify that funding is going to be made available for uh, anchor institutions to get 
gigabit connectivity. In fact, there's a new broadband bill that's going to be reintroduced tomorrow that will provide another $40 billion in broadband funding. And it specifically says that anchor institutions are eligible if they don't have gigabit capacity. So we think that's that's headed in the right direction. And we hope you know one ver any of these versions that include gigabit for anchor institutions to be enacted by Congress in the near future would be a wonderful thing for this country. Through the magic of time travel, that bill will probably have been released last week as people are listening to this. So <laughs> ah, okay. Sorry about the timing. <laughs> yeah. No, that's no, it's actually wonderful because they'll be able to go check it out if they're if they're interested in it. I think it's a it's a wonderful piece of legislation that I have also um encouraged uh, you know, I've I said a, a both support and offered a statement in support of. Um, right. Alicia, were you gonna jump in? Go ahead. I just wanted to add that what is inspiring to see is the number of states uh, that have been doing their own mapping projects that do include anchor institutions. Um, I know that Simmons University, Colin Ryan Smith, I believe, has done some really great work mapping library broadband. Um, and I know that Pennsylvania has also been doing a great job. So I just encourage people to go look into this state level work and uh, Shelby really hopes that one day we can find a way to unite all of these various mapping efforts uh, into something that uh, is useful in determining where we are with anchor institution connectivity. Yes, I've I've come around to the idea that probably it would be best if we had a coalition of states and organizations like yours, mine, and some of the others that actually developed a map that became kind of the authoritative map because I do not trust the federal government to get it right. And I'm a little bit worried about states going off in different directions. And I felt like maybe if we could get a, a critical mass of states uniting behind something that, that had some rigor and really um, you know, covered all of these different problems that we're seeing regularly, that would probably be a, a good solution. And then it would also be a little bit insulated from the world of the federal government, which isn't always easy for doing mashups and things like that, but we would have an incentive to try to help others extend it and things like that. Mm. You know, Chris, you and I should have, uh, I should have reached out to you before this podcast because I've been proposing, uh, promoting an idea for funding from this broadband legislation that it really should include funding for needs assessment by local communities. And, you know, I, I realize now as an oversight, I should have uh, reached out to you to try to uh, combine efforts on this because my suggestion to amend this broadband act tomorrow on needs assessment was not adopted. Uh, but let's keep working together on that to see if we can improve that because we know the, the federal maps are not going to be good enough. We have a lot of questions about the state maps. I think the local communities are in the best position to determine where broadband does and does not exist on the ground. And, but they need funding in order to be able to carry out that needs assessment. Uh, they can't just do it. Um, they probably need to hire a consultant or an engineer uh, to examine the broadband capabilities in their network. Yes, and I've been hoping that philanthropy would help to demonstrate how this could work um, and how we could potentially develop some tools to make that a bit easier. So maybe they wouldn't have to hire a consultant in every single you know, city or, or things like that. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much opportunity out there. That's the thing that I, I feel like I wake up cheerful no matter how many times I'm disappointed at the news <laughs> that I read the day before, because there's a lot of opportunity out there still. Mm -hmm. um, not every day. I wake up not cheerful sometimes, I'll admit it. Um, 
I want to I want to ask about uh, telehealth. I mean, this is something that I just uh, you mentioned, John, that it is is underfunded. I feel like even though people recognize that it has tremendous implications, I don't think enough people really appreciate just how much that is. And to give you an idea, I've been saying this for a while. People in broadband think of broadband as being expensive. And so when people in telehealth or in healthcare more generally think about broadband, they think, oh, it's expensive. But in like healthcare, broadband is nothing. Like if you went to a hospital and said, oh yeah, the cost of keeping that patient to have a home connection is going to be like, you know, maybe it'll be 500 to a thousand dollars per year. The hospital will be like, what? Like, that's what it costs them to spend a night with us. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. It costs mm-hmm. like a fraction of that to like have them have internet access for a year with like some devices, even you could like still save money over like what it costs. And so I just, I feel like it's this issue in which like, it makes so much sense to improve healthcare with broadband and just take a, a par- portion of the savings we can get from healthcare. And we can do a heck of a lot in in broadband but let me ask you just more broadly rather than going off in this flight of fancy um what are your priorities what are you working on right now in telehealth we've got like three different tracks of work on telehealth uh that we're we're trying to to do simultaneously so one track is that the application process for the uh, fcc's rural health care program is really not operating at an optimal level uh, in fact it's been getting a little bit worse over the last few years which is incredibly frustrating because that's exactly when it should be increasing and improving given the the COVID pandemic. But of course, it's been difficult for the FCC and USAC because for a couple of reasons. One is that the demand is just going through the roof. And if you can just imagine how many people now are using telemedicine, um, there are some reports that the number of telemedicine visits has grown like 900% higher than it used to be two years ago. So it's an enormous demand requiring much greater bandwidth. Um, And to its credit, Congress did try to address this by allocating some separate money to the FCC. First, it was 200 million in the CARES Act, and then another 250 million that they gave to the FCC for for, uh, telehealth. And the FCC actually did a good job of administering that money. But that's one-time money. Well, two-time money, I guess, to be accurate. Um, <laughs> the rural healthcare program is ongoing. Unfortunately, the uh, demand has been uh, more stable for that because people find the, the application process so difficult and time-consuming and frustrating. I mean, here we are in June of 2021 when some applicants applications that were submitted in um, May of 2020, over a year ago, still haven't been ruled on yet by USAC. So that really discourages participation in the program. So we're working with the FCC and USAC to improve the application processing times. We're also working with Congress to appropriate that $2 billion in additional funding that I mentioned earlier. Um, And then third, we're also working with the FCC, talking to the FCC about how to improve the rural urban database that is used to calculate the rural discount for uh, rural healthcare operators that operate in the telecommunications program. So there's multiple fronts uh, that we're working on, but it's all towards the same goal of upgrading the bandwidth available for these rural health clinics. And oftentimes the best way to get them higher quality medical care or, me- or telemedicine is to connect those rural health clinics to the urban hospitals. So they can exchange information, electronic medical records more, more cleanly, but 
right now we hear examples where a rural health clinic can't exchange medical records and do electronic monitoring of patient care at the same time because they just don't have enough uh, broadband capabilities. So that's really limiting the quality of healthcare, especially for rural communities where people are older, they're sicker, um, and they have less income in rural markets. So that's where it's really needed. Not to mention that those areas also are the ones without hospitals. And so that health clinic, it's the only resource for these, these people in this area. And um, I don't know if you're interested in exploring the COVID-19 telehealth program, but there was, there was some disappointment in the way that the funds from that were dispersed um, for the CARES Act, from the CARES Act specifically. Um, like, for example, um, the states that received the most funding correlated with the COVID-19 outbreaks, which of course it makes sense when you think about it. But the thing is that that meant that the funding went to areas where there actually was less need for broadband funding. And the sparse areas like Alaska, which is notorious for its tricky healthcare situation, um, given how rural it is and how much more expensive broadband is there, um, Alaska did not get anything. So there was just some disparities there that were really disconcerting, and we're hopeful that that was a learning experience. Yes, I uh, I was expecting you to say they did not get as much as it should have. Not it got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's one of the things I, I know Shelby's had members in Alaska for a long time. And so I know that you don't forget that Alaska is an important state to, um, that has a lot of, of needs from uh, library schools uh, or healthcare facilities. So John, one of the things that I, I really appreciate about you uh, is the fact that I feel like the, the road of broadband is littered with people who have tried to touch contribution reform and got electrocuted. <laughs> um, or at the very least, we're just deeply disappointed that they weren't able to make a bigger dent. And um, this is this issue of, of how big is the universal service fund? How is it funded? How can we keep it sustainable to make sure it matches with the need and, and a variety of other things? Because I think everyone agrees it is on an unsustainable course. It has been for some time. And so um, I'm just, I want to, I want to, as we talk about contribution reform for how we make sure we have money for things like E-rate and, uh, and rural broadband and uh, telehealth, why is this um, something that, that, that you want to move? Is it personally, I mean, like not just from Shelby's point of view, but, but you as a person can decide where you're going to do your focus and you have a deep history of this stuff. So tell us a little bit about that. Thank you, Chris, for framing it that way, uh, because I do feel pretty passionately about the Universal Service Fund uh, before we get into the mechanics, which I will get into. But just if you look at the big picture, the whole purpose of our communications regulatory system is to make sure that communication services are affordable for everybody. And that's what brings this country together, is that, you, that, that we can create subsidy mechanisms so that if you're benefiting from the communications network, you benefit more from the communications network if lots of other people are connected to, to those networks and you can interact with them. So for me, it's a real uh, social equity issue. Uh, it's really one of the reasons I got into this field in the first place. Um, I really feel like we ought to be democratizing our communications infrastructure so that individual consumers have more control and more say 
over how the communications networks are deployed. And they need to have these rights uh, to be able to connect so that we're not just um, dealt the hand that we're played by the big multinational corporations. So the Universal Service Fund really is a, a philosophy that I think is so important, vitally important to bringing America together so that we're all working together to achieve a similar goal of connecting everybody and sharing information, selling products and services, and just inspiring each other. But we need to be connected to broadband now if that's going to happen. I mean, this is the future, but the current universal service system is funded with an old fashioned mechanism that only places a fee on your telephone bills, on your international and interstate uh, end user communications, telecommunications services and some telecommunications. So that is still an old way of collecting the money when really most of the funding is being um, spent on broadband networks. So in my view, we really ought to be assessing a fee on broadband consumers today in order to encourage everybody else to be connected to those broadband networks in the future. And so I have been working with several other organizations uh, who also feel the importance of continuing and in, uh, improving the Universal Service Fund because we all have a joint interest. Yes, we may have some differences of opinion on, the, on each individual program, but collectively we all believe in the notion of universal service and everybody should be connected and so we ought to be, and we are putting together a proposal now that would uh, stabilize the funding for the Universal Service Fund for the long run. Relying on Congress to fund the Universal Service Fund, in our view, is not uh, a good, stable solution. I mean, just look how <laughs> often Congress you know, uh, shuts down the government or has sequestered funding where they take back funding that's always been appropriated. That is not a stable mechanism for funding communications networks going forward or connectivity for anybody. So we think the FCC is the proper body. I mean, this is one of the reasons the FCC was created was to right. provide this kind of expertise and coordination for the whole country. Um, but we just think that the existing funding mechanism has been, the rate has been going up and up and up. And now it's around 31, 32% of your telephone bill. It's gonna collapse. We can't keep that system in place or the entire universal service fabric will disappear. The timing on this is really urgent. We need to solve this problem and we are working with others to, we're willing to do that. We're, so we're, we're, we're putting our fingers on the electrical wire that electrocutes other people, but we're gonna do it anyway because this is so important. I would love to just add here that I think John is really underplaying the coalition that he has built uh, around this effort. He has been convening any and every organization with a stake in this. Um, you know, not obviously Shelby is not a or not a partisan organization, but really it's across industry lines, and so um, it's he's really put together something uh, wonderful. And um, I do want to raise, John, the naysayers view of uh, the idea that moving the, the contributions base to a broadband-based source of income, would that hurt consumers? Because uh, that's something that I think we've heard floating around. And I, I, I just, I know that you have a certain thought about that. 
Well, I have to I have to intervene because um, I just have to say that uh, I don't know what that means uh, because internet users are not consumers. And John's heard me rant about this before, so I know you all have your way of talking about it. But I just wanted to, to get that in there. Thank you. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> well, that's that's a good point, uh, Chris. And I think our view is that the current system is very unfair. And basically, it's people who are stuck with the old-fashioned telephone service that are bearing the brunt of paying for broadband connections. And some people are paying into the fund, other people are not paying into the fund, even though they use very comparable, similar services. So it's uh, harmful to existing users slash consumers slash producers uh, of content on broadband connections. Um, and a system that equalizes the pain, if you will, would also lower the cost quite a bit. So for instance, our analysis shows that if you broaden the base of funding to include all broadband services revenues, that the um, percentage fee would drop from 32% down to less than 5% of your monthly uh, bill. And so we think that is a, an acceptable uh, and important um, value in reform because it would just reduce the burden and equalize the spread the burden more fairly. Alicia, that's a, it was a very nice way of putting that. And I'm sure that some people make that argument with more seriousness than others. But I honestly think that the only reason we resist this logical way of paying for it is because we're like, ah, I don't want to pay a tax on my broadband because I would prefer not to. I mean, we're talking about amount that is less than what most of our broadband bills will increase over the next two years. Like I'm already going to be paying that much more or a lot more. I mean, heck, in December, my broadband bill could well jump like 20 or $30 a month as my contract with Comcast comes up. And so uh, there's a rational sense in which people are like, oh, I'd prefer not to pay another tax. But at the same time, with what John's saying, like it's unfair. And it's unfair for a variety of reasons. It totally distorts the market. I mean, like companies pick and choose technologies based on not necessarily what's best for their network, but based on whether or not they can avoid paying a tax. And that's just bad policy. So we, we really need to fix this. And I, and I honestly think that the arguments that are against it are, are often made in, I think, bad faith. Um, but the simple fact is it's still very hard to change a system like this. So um, I, I think John is a perfect person to be working forward on it. Because if it was someone like me, people would be like, yeah, we're not going to trust Chris. <laughs> but like everyone trusts John. John, so. He yelled at me for, oh. for using consumers incorrectly. I'm not going to trust Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I do that often. <laughs> um, well, this is good, and I um, and I and I just I do think it is very important that we um, we have this. Uh, mechanism for universal service in that it is right-sized. Um, you know, we all know that Lifeline wasn't getting the job done and we really need to fix all aspects of the universal service and make sure it can be funded well into the future. Uh, and, you know, it'd be nice if we could just tax Facebook solely to pay for it, but I don't think that's going to happen no matter how politically popular it would be in DC. So <laughs> I welcome a serious discussion that, that Shelby's putting forward. <laughs> Well, that's the thing. I mean, we're looking for uh, realistic solutions that the FCC can adopt under its existing authority. Um, trying to go after Facebook and um, and Twitter and, and Google and the other platform companies, as, as Commissioner Carr has recently suggested, that would take an act of Congress. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, those platform companies will fight that to the death. So that is not a, a likely and realistic solution. So we're looking at solutions that the FCC could do under its current authority. 
Wonderful. Well, there's a lot of other things that you're working on. We'd love to have you back and uh, talk more about some of these um, in depth. Uh, but thank you so much for your time today and, and good luck with all this work. Thank you. Well, thank you, Chris. It's a great pleasure to be here with you and look forward to continuing to work together with you. That was Christopher talking with John Windhausen and Alicia Johnson. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle is at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle is at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 464 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening.